0: I would like to welcome everyone to the BISA Portfolio Podcast, a podcast elevating the voices of bank insurance and securities association members. I'm Carol Goulding, guest host of this episode, exploring the ins and outs of the FINRA priority exam letter. Today, I'm speaking with Serena Shores, who is Chief Compliance Officer of Huntington Investment Company. But first, I want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast and leave it a rating and review while you're at it. It's available wherever you listen to your podcast, so make sure you're subscribed, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform. And if you enjoy our discussion today, please share with your network. I also want to take a moment to introduce myself and how I'm connected to BISA. I work at m Securities as Senior Compliance Manager. I also serve as Chair of the BISA's Regulatory Compliance Education Committee, a position I've held since approximately 2015. The Regulatory and Compliance Education Committee launched in 2014 as part of the Regulatory and Compliance Program. The program serves as a resource for BISA's member companies in an increasingly stringent regulatory environment. BISA partners with qualified firms, provide strategic insights and regulatory compliance and risk management expertise through regular editorial content submission, training and education, conference programming, and other monitoring and risk management information services that would benefit BISA members. One way BISA accomplishes this is through summits for our members. We have a fall compliance summit, typically held in November, and a spring event in February. I'm looking forward to seeing many of our listeners at the fall event. Also, the education committee hosts monthly meetings to discuss timely topics. Please visit our website to learn more. Now that I've summarized the background of our regulatory and compliance program, just a little bit of homework, I just want to mention our comments reflect our opinions and are not necessarily the opinions of our firm. But now I'm excited to welcome Serena Shores. Serena, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello and welcome everyone, as we say at
1: Huntington. Carol, thank you for having me today. My name, as Carol mentioned, is Serena Shores, and I am the Chief Compliance Officer for Huntington Financial Advisors for Huntington Investment Company, as it's legally known. I've been in the industry for over 23 years, and as the Chief Compliance Officer for Huntington Investment Company, I believe my responsibility does not end with ensuring that our firm has a strong compliance program that is appropriately designed to prevent any violation of industry rules and regulations. But also importantly, that I forge a strong relationship with our regulators to ensure they understand our business and our registered representatives. Thank you,
0: Serena. As you've mentioned, as compliance officers, we know that it is in our best interest to seriously review any communication from regulators, including the SEC and FINRA. The regulators provide hints or direction with respect to the important topics for us to review. We know two of the primary publications from the FCC and FINRA, namely the high-priority letters, are issued typically in the first quarter. Serena, can you tell our listeners the process you have implemented to analyze and dissect the FCC and FINRA letters? How do you begin analyzing those letters?
1: I am happy to. As you stated, we don't often know exactly what our regulators think. These exam priorities, these letters are our way of knowing what is going on, what the expectations are, and how the regulators interpret some of the rules and regulations that we deal with daily. So for my company specifically, the compliance managers will need in person to conduct a review of these letters alongside our written supervisory
0: procedures.
1: The review does not only focus on That year's priorities letter, we also look at prior year, the preceding two-year priorities letter, and we compare and contrast and also look at our WSP. what is needed, if there are any gaps. Thank you, Serena.
0: So you mentioned that the compliance managers are involved in analyzing the letters like what are, are, are there different levels in the organization that are included? Are decision makers involved in the analysis of what the requirements are? So the first take, Carol, is the compliance managers. We
1: will sit, as I said, review what the priorities are, best practices. That were mention all exam findings from these letters, both the SECs and the FINRA letters. And based on what we've identified, We would take it to the Compliance Risk Management Committee, which consists of compliance personnel, the line of business, senior leadership, risk folks, as well as our audit and legal folks. We go over these priority letters, what pertains to our business, some of the gaps that we may have identified, and what we will suggest or a proposal is to the business to
0: do going forward. So, Serena, how do you go about analyzing the different requirements? I'm a little familiar with those letters, and they're broken up into different sections. Do you take each one of the sections and perhaps put them on some type of spreadsheet and determine where you are satisfying the requirements? Or where there's a gap, and perhaps if they're uh, pointed to a WSP procedure, or how do you specifically analyze the requirement? So, Carol, as you mentioned, you know,
1: these are in sections. The good news is the regulators have a good layout with these regulations and where they will apply to any firm's WSP. So, what we do, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you. We have an AI system, a technology that could just review all of this and do the comparison for us. We don't. So we use Excel spreadsheets. We will capture all the issues that we identify in both letters from the SEC, from FINRA. And then on the other side will be our written supervisory procedures. We will look and see what really pertains to our business, first and foremost. And then from there, if there are any best practices that were identified that we noticed our WSP may be missing and might need to be updated to include those best practices, assuming it's relevant. Also, if it's not best practices and it's actual finding, we will also review to see if we have a gap and what needs to be done. Once that is captured, you will identify which part of the WSP may need to be updated, if there needs to be any training or any communication just to make people aware of what is going on in the industry.
0: You mentioned best practices. Where do you find these best practices? How are they identified? Is there a source for these best practices? Where do you go to determine what seems to be industry practice and therefore best practice? That's a good question,
1: Carol. You know, this is the beauty about being a member of BISA. In addition to what the best practices are from the regulators' letters, we will either consult with some of our members, and then some of you, yourself included, we will call you or even send a quick email or get on these either monthly or quarterly meetings and pose those questions about, hey, how do you do X, Y, Z? And our member firms are very, very willing to share their best practices, and some of the issues they've encountered, how they've addressed those issues. We learn a lot from those conversations, and we may sometimes have to consult with in-house counsel or outside counsel. But I can tell you the best practices that you're going to get is usually from somebody or a company that is doing the day-to-day or has encountered an issue similar to what you were talking about. Not just the theoretical aspect of the rule, but the practical application of the rule uh, gained from speaking with somebody who's done it or
0: been there. Ah, I see. Very good. Very good. So if you contact various peers in the industry, is there ever any fear that they could identify a gap that you seem to be owning up to or that you're uncertain and they could use any of that information? That's not something that you're concerned about, is it?
1: No, I am not because, you know, among all of us, our BISA members and other regulatory
0: roundtables,
1: we have a common understanding that what is said in the room is left in that room. We should be able to trust each other to be able to share this information Consulting with somebody for best practices does not mean a crime has been committed. So, if one finds or sees the need to go escalate it or report it to somebody, unfortunately, that's their, their cup of tea. But I am never concerned with consulting with any of our BISA members or
0: the industry members for best practices, as we all do, you know what? Right, right. We certainly have as well, Serena, and I've contacted you frequently. Another question, have you ever contacted the regulators directly? Have you ever contacted CINRA directly to ask them what they're seeing in the industry and whether or not they've seen some best practices that they'd be willing to share and provide us some insight as to what others are doing and what they perceive to be an appropriate process or procedure that's in place? Have you contacted the regulators for anything like that? Yes, I have, Carol.
1: You know, old school way of thinking. We used to be told, I mean, compliance personnel were told, do not reach out to your regulator because whatever you say may and can be used against you. However, the industry has evolved, including our regulators, especially when we send moved from the coordinator to the risk analyst structure. I have contacted my risk analyst. On multiple occasions, one, either to inform her about what my company is looking to undertake and what does she think based on what I've laid out to her or what she's seen in the industry that will help me either avoid some of the mistakes people have made or, you know, shortfalls, you know, address those before I implement either... A procedure, a policy, or even a product, onboard a product. And I can tell you, those conversations have been crucial. In a lot of cases, I've learned a lot from my analysts than I have from reading the rule by itself or even contacting some of my friends in the industry. So, leveraging your um, compliance, you know, your uh, final analyst, it's really important. Start that relationship ahead of time before you need to speak with them about best practices or anything else you plan to do.
0: Good advice, Serena. So let's talk a little bit more about the uh, FINRA letter and what you do with the results of that particular analysis. And you mentioned that if you identify a gap, obviously you're going to work with your business partners and put in place some type of procedure or a process to close that gap, or if you think that the regulators perhaps are digging deeper into a particular issue, even if you have procedures in place, it may serve you well to enhance those procedures. But let me ask you this question. We all know that we are evaluated by FINRA on a regular basis. Have you discussed with them or have you shown them the analysis that you've prepared of the letter that they produce on an annual basis? Have you showed them those results or discussed with them the results or the process that you have in place to review the letter?
1: So I may be a little different. Some of our compliance officers out there because I do have an ongoing recurring meeting with my FINRA risk analyst. And when these letters come out, either the SECs or the Federal priorities letters come up, as I said, after reviewing these, if I notice some gaps at the company or some best practices that we think is useful. During one of my recurring meetings with my analysts, I may even ask the question of what I've seen that is different from practices that we've had in the past. I sometimes may even ask, what is the premises behind that recommendation? We did not let her. You get to get some answers, and sometimes your analyst may tell you they don't know. But I will share my analysis, not in a written form, but during a telephone conversation. And a lot of times that is because I'm trying to gain more intel, if I may say so, or information from this analyst. Truth be told, the analysts usually have more information available to them than we do as to where the regulator is heading and what they're seeing out there. So it pays to leverage some of that by speaking about this analysis that my department has conducted. I get to gain a lot more from her as to what she's seen. But as I said, I don't present her with a written analysis of what we've done. This is something we keep, if ever needed, depending on the situation I make. But I have never presented it in writing. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. But, but she's
0: aware of, she's probably aware of the fact that you have prepared this type of document, but she's never requested it. That's correct. Okay. All right. Have you ever put it under attorney client privilege to the attorney? Does your legal staff have an opportunity to review it? Have you ever discussed any of the matters with them, or has that not been necessary? Fortunately, We haven't had any incident
1: during any of these reviews that would have rise to that level. However, I must say, if during the review process, we identify an issue that may be of a regulatory concern or even firm-wide, it could be HR or anything else, we will consult with our legal department. We have a fantastic relationship with our legal and risk folks, so I typically will reach out if there is anything that I think needs to be escalated and have a more in-depth and open communication. Yeah, that, that always
0: serves us well, to be open with the folks that can provide us such guidance and assistance. So you've reviewed the letters. You've identified where your strengths are. You've looked for the best practices. You've found gaps, perhaps, or enhancements that you'd like to put in place. And now you've come to the end point. Do you provide a summary and do you provide that to the board or what entities within your organization are are actually provided a summary report or some type of report to indicate that you've reviewed the letter and that you are either fully compliant or maybe you have a little bit of work to do? So we do, uh, I mentioned earlier that we
1: have a compliance risk committee that meet every quarter. Our analysis, the review and analysis is captured on an Excel spreadsheet showing where the gaps are, best practices, and where within our WSP, the written supervisory procedure, this will be applicable to. And we will create a summary of either these findings, gaps, or even things we do well. We will create analysis of that and we present it at the Courtly Compliance Risk Committee meeting. And this meeting had, as I said, members of our leadership. The CEO is there, Mike Mirbali. We have our council, you know, in house council that is on this. We also have the director of principal review desk as part of the meeting, director of supervision as part of this meeting. We have the sales managers, you know, the director of the national sales director, it's on this meeting. We have our audit directors on the meeting. We have even our risk partners on the meeting. So audit stakeholders are represented at this meeting. This is presented to them, and we invite comments, opinions, what they see, and how they can collectively help if there's a gap, address the gap. If it is something that is just to make others aware, they know who to communicate and when to communicate it, And then that summary is also presented to our board of directors as well. So we do it in both
0: places. Uh, Very good. So everyone is well informed of the status and how compliant, or if any changes need to be put in place or any technology changes need to be put in place, which is always a time-consuming endeavor when technology is involved. So now you've analyzed the letters. You've identified gaps. You have people, folks working on closing those gaps. The board's aware of it. All the pertinent individuals are fully aware of the summary. So now you need to communicate it to the people that actually to affect these changes. So how is training done in your organization? How does that occur and how do these folks become aware that there may be some changes in procedures? So we do have a training group that is responsible
1: for training all of our employees. And then we also have, within the compliance department, a manager who is responsible for compliance-specific training. So depending on the type of gap or the training need, either the compliance department will create it or we will have the line of business training group create the training and all parties will review to ensure that the training is addressing what we need addressed based on the findings. Schedule a meeting with everybody else. And the various managers who are responsible for supervision to make sure, one, our training calendar is in line with whatever else is going on and can free up the, the colleagues who are supposed to take the training or participate, whether it's a live training, a webinar, their teams, or if it is going to be a training piece that is on our systems, you know, our company's website, we we'll call it essential, where the training can be delivered. Once that is done, we will communicate out to the general registered representative or associate of the firm as to when the training needs to be taken, which means, and also the deadlines for each one. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we will even have call schedule, follow-up call schedule for Q&A. Let's say you took the training and you still have questions. There may be session for Q&A live call for people to answer those questions.
0: Very good. Very good. So, I think I heard you say that there may be different training types depending on the topic, and there may also perhaps be different training designs for the recipient of that training so that they, not everyone necessarily needs to receive the same training. So, is it tailored to the recipient? It sure is, because an associated person who is not
1: necessarily registered, does not have any licenses, may have a different training requirement versus somebody who is in a sales capacity or a back office capacity or a principal capacity. So the training are typically tailored to the needs of the recipient. And sometimes we also will look at the training pieces and say, how can we get it delivered where majority of the people will be receptive to? Is it better to do it live? Is it better to do it as a recorded training? Is it better to do it as an on-screen kind of training for you to go in and take it all? Or is it better to do regional meetings and present? Oh so, yes.
0: Perfect. Well, Serena, it sounds like you've done a very thorough job in analyzing the priority letters. You broke them down piece by piece, uh, evaluated the current year to the prior years, presented to the board, and have trained the individuals who need to fulfill the requirements. I'd like to thank you for providing this information and enlightening us in your process. Thank you so much for taking your time to share with our listeners. And I hope our discussion today was helpful to our listeners as they prepare to review the Finner Priority Exam Letter. I know it can be tricky when you first go through the process, but you'll be an expert in no time. Thank you so much, Serena, for taking the time to share with our listeners. And thank you, Carol, for having me. Thank you, BISA. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Please remember to rate and review this podcast and share it with your network.